Friends, family, citizens of the universe, hello and welcome to Have Tap Shoes Will Travel. This is episode number 52. Yes! I, this, we've got a full deck now. It's it's a milestone. I see, th- This is one of my first of, of many podcast goals, was to create 52 of them to have a full deck of cards. Here we are. We made it. All right, this this episode features tap dancer and teacher Mr. Max Pollock. He came over and he, he we recorded it in my Minneapolis living room and this was oh <clears throat> Studio 101, we'll call it. Um when Max was in town for the Twin Cities Tap Festival in late October. And so I first met him in the late 90s and it's it's always great to see him. So not only is he on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. He's also currently one of the five featured tap dancers on the Forever Stamp. Yes, right now there's a U.S. postage stamp with tap dancers on them. You know this, right? Got to give a shout out to Stacy and Anthony Lacascio for sending me a holiday greeting and a 2021 recap card in the mail. It's like a recap of their whole year. So I got some updates. They, they said they're preparing to open a 100% gluten, soy, and corn-free bakery. And I bet it's going to be delicious. I got to try it. I'm looking forward to visiting it. I want a tour. And it looks like one more summer tap tour is going to be happening with them up in the summer, like happening in the summer of 2022. Anthony and Stacy Lacascio, watch out. If they're going to be coming to a city near you. When was the last time someone sent you a letter in the mail? How about this? Get a book of tap stamps of with with all the different tap dancers that are currently on them and send a letter to a person with each of those stamps in the book. There you go. There's there's a fun game. Buy the stamps, send them letters of some kind with an envelope. Write it out, write out their address, do the whole thing. When was the last time you sent someone a letter old school? <laughs> so when Anthony and Stacy sent me this card in the mail, they used the forever stamp. And the one that they used was the Dormisha Sumbri Edwards stamp. And, you know, she created And Still You Must Swing. And she's phew, one of the greatest tap dancers ever. But Max Pollock is our guest today. He shares stories of his life as a tap dancer and also insights into Cuban music history and tap floor design tips, ideas of how to record body percussion, the eternal debate of bare-chested, skin-on-skin versus not. (laughs) He even shed some light on the nuances of the very rarely talked about Austrian clave. This is an enlightening podcast episode, I'm telling you. Check out his website, too, which is his name with all all of the vowels removed. Who needs them? Right? Go to mxplk.com. That's Max Pollock with all of the vowels removed. There you go. All right. Thank you to Twin Cities Tap Festival, Brenna and Kalina at twincitiestap.com. Mark your calendars for next year. The Twin Cities Tap Festival is happening. I've, I've recently, well, it wasn't that recent. Maybe it was like within the last month or something. I was like, I just want to confirm the dates of next year's event. And so it's October 
20th through the 23rd in 2022. Wow, that was a lot of 20s happening. Not bad. Eh, we're just getting started, all right? <laughs> we're almost there. I also want to give a shout out to Matt and Carrie and Nancy and Andrew and Chris and Stephanie over at the Dancing Fair. Shout out to the entire Dancing Fair crew at dancingfair.com. If you need tap shoes, if you need whatever, dancewear, go check it out. They've got all this stuff. You probably already know it. Just hit them up. You need some shoes? Hit them up, dancingfair.com. I also want to give a shout out to Kathy Wind and Ellen Keen of Keen Sense of Rhythm at tapcompany.org. Monday night tap jams in the windshed from 9 to 11 p.m. on Monday nights. It's at Kathy Wind's Secret Studio, so you have to reach out and hit up Kathy. She'll tell you where it is. Check them out at tapcompany.org. Also, I want to give a shout out to Robin Konama Holin. She sent us a message on Facebook and how she liked hearing about Anna Esposito getting a shout-out on episode 51 with Sarah Reich. And I was like, well, I'll give you a shout-out on this upcoming episode. So I I had to make good on that one. So shout-out to you, Robin. And then Kaylin Gray, I received a a message from her that our bucket CD, the, the Oslin Brothers bucket CD, is on her Spotify wrapped this year, and it was... We made it as the top, we're, well, we were in her top five. We were number two in her top five of all the artists that she's been listening to, apparently. And we beat Janet Jackson and Dua Lipa. I mean, come on. The the one that topped us was Lettuce. And, you know, that was pretty good, though. I, I don't mind that. Shoot, all these people were awesome. So, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be on her list of people that she's checking out. And I've used the music from that on today's episode also north second street was her number two top song i'm like wow you're getting some you're getting some good use out of that one and all of the all of the songs there's 10 tracks on this album and my brother and i created it all 10 of them have the bpm listed for it so you you know the tempos that you're working at while you're you know there's no lyrics or anything on there so it's just all beats that we were created by you know, drumming on buckets and things like that. And like I said, the music on today's episode is from the Bucket Drumming Volume 1 album, which is available on Apple Music and Spotify and iTunes. You know what? I even reprinted the CDs a couple of years ago, so let me know if you want one. I can I can send one to you in the mail, all right? I'll send you a, a copy of it. The nice The upside to that is if you take it off of a CD, you have WAV files, which is a fatter file, really. I mean, it takes up more space, but they do sound a lot better. So I could send you a CD. You let me know, all right? I got the hookup over here. I also received my CD from Sarah Reich. I, I sent her... I, she can send you a CD of her album as well. But, you know, check in with her if you don't already have her CD, too. That's It's an awesome one. Worth, worth checking out. Check out HaveTapShoesWillTravel.com. I just saw my... What is it? The the hosting site, Squarespace. I'm I'm not gonna, you know whatever. I'm, here's here's a plug for them, I guess, for free. But I just received that um, the notification that my one year is now being charged for the next year. I'm like, all right, cool. So it's up. So go go check it out. I gotta I gotta build it out a little more. So give me some suggestions if you if you go check out the website. Tell me what you would like to see on there. 
and yeah, that'll that'll give me some direction. I need a little direction on the website. What, what, what do we need here? <laughs> Let me know. All right, now on with the show. Please welcome to Studio 101, Mr. Max Pollock. Welcome to Have Cap Shoes Will Travel. Oh yes. We're back again. Episode number 52. We've got the one and only Mr. Max Pollock in the building. And he was just checking his phone, so I, I want to make sure that he's ready to go. But, you know, whatever. I just thought I'd do this little intro part first to start off. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> We're square ready to go. How's it going over there, Max? Great, great. Yes. It's lovely to be in Minneapolis again Man. after so long. Yeah. And so thankful to have you back. Thank you. Thank when was you. the last time you were here? I think it was um, in 20, what, might have been 2016 that I was here. Um, I've been here many times yeah. over the years, sometimes just teaching in, in the studios, uh, sometimes at the university, sometimes mm-hmm. performing. I think my first time ever performing in Minneapolis might have been 2003 or 2004 sure. when I was here with uh, Ciro Baptista's Beat the Donkey yes. at the Walker. Wow, that's where it was. Okay, because mm-hmm. when I got to see them, they, they came back and they performed at O'Gara's in mm-hmm. St. Paul. Mm-hmm. But you weren't here that time. No, no. Chicago was here. Right, yeah. That might have been after you came and did the Walker one, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I stopped performing with them regularly in like 2006, 2007, which doesn't mean I didn't perform with them afterwards, but yeah. just not on all the tours. I just got busier with other sure. things and I couldn't, you know, coordinate all the schedules anymore. Yeah. Uh, but Ciro is one of my main mentors and yeah. one, a huge influence in my life. Very, very positive. So um, I always mention him as one of my big artistic and also personal um, gurus almost, you know, because mm-hmm. he's such a presence and such a positive uh, um, energy. Yes. In my life and not only in mine. I know, you know, he's he has impacted many, many people. So Well, the way I was introduced to him first was through the Rhythm of the Saints album, Paul mm. Simon's album. Right. And I know that he was playing with Steve Gadd on that album. Yes, he's good friends with Steve. Yeah. 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 That was and it was Duke Gadd that introduced me to him in the first place. Mm-hmm. And when Duke was in town performing with us, we were doing a show at First Avenue. This must have been two thousand five. But he introduced me because he said, oh, Ciro Baptista's in town. And he's like, let's go to this show. We've, mm-hmm. And then that's how, it, that's how it came together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a beautiful setup, too. So many percussion instruments on oh, one yeah, yeah. stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've never, I've never been involved in any project that had more instruments yeah. from more different cultures on one stage at one time. Yeah. And I know that for sure because I carried it all. Oh, you were part roadie too on this one. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Man. No, in, in that band, that was one of the big, you know, challenges. Mm-hmm. We we had to drag everything back and forth. How so. did what did you put it all in one giant giant case and basically? Roll it in? Yeah, I mean the the tour setup was one van for the people, one wow. van for the stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean truck, you know, not van, sure. truck. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, we would drive to the venue 
unload the truck, you know, build it up on the stage, do the show, break it down, put it back in the truck, get in the van, drive for another couple of hours, then, you know, sleep for like three hours or something yeah. and get on the road for the next hit. Yeah, Go do that, your sound check. That'll, yeah, that'll grind you into fine powder. Yeah. Sure will. Yeah. So yeah. Then and it'll sure... put some hair on your chest. That's for sure too. Ooh. Yeah. Man. Yeah. But, but it's you were saying that the U of M too were, was it the U of M you were working as a professor for a while? Well, not as a professor. I was just uh, uh, I, I did a residency there. Okay. <clears throat> for a few weeks, and I put together a piece. I mean, I was oh. teaching regular classes there. Mm-hmm. I like for a month about or a month and a half. Uh, I was teaching regular classes on various levels, and I was creating a piece for their dance concert. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> and. Um, so at the U of M, I've been a few times, and uh, I've been uh, at the U of M in Duluth mm-hmm. uh, even more times. Uh, UMD? At UMD, exactly, yeah. Uh, because my friend Anne Bergeron is, oh. uh, or was, she retired recently, uh, professor there. And I've met, I met her uh, in 2002, I want to say, in Finland. Mm. I used to go to Finland every year. For the Helsinki. For the Helsinki Tap yes. Festival uh, that um, Feet Beat, uh, that uh, Sophie Kirkland, Sophie Kir- yes. Sophie Kirkland yeah. used to organize. And um, Heather got me in there. Heather Cornell got me into that festival because nice. she was pregnant and gave birth in 2001, 2002. So she was supposed to go, mm-hmm. uh, but then couldn't. And then she called me and that's how I ended up going there. Wow. And uh, then we ended up being there together a few times also and that was my uh, the beginning of my relationship with Finland which is also very uh, very profound yeah and um, of any country that we've been able to go to I've, that's the one that we've been brought to the most is we've been there three times nice yeah yeah so fortunate to be able to go and do something like that yeah yeah Man. yeah and it's it's wonderful all, people over there exactly great tap dance communities yes yeah and also really intense culture mm-hmm. you know uh, a lot of folklore music it's one of the few places in the world, I want to say, where you can go to the most important music university, mm-hmm. uh, the Sibelius Academy in, in Helsinki, yeah. and study Finnish folklore and get a degree, a 100% legit music degree in folklore. Wow. And, and it's not just like a little joke. Yeah. It's, it's serious study right. of Finnish folklore and, and Scandinavian folklore. Uh, and that's something that uh, the United States has to get together sometime, you know. Yes. Where you can really seriously study and get a degree, not just in classical music or theater or jazz, but folkloric music, mm-hmm. you know. Because there's so much more, even, you know, in, in American music, there are so many different kinds of folklore all over the U.S. that should all be... Um, academically recognized and honored as legit parts of the American heritage. Yes, and that that's how you show your appreciation for your for your true uh, roots. You know, but at this point, you know, you can't even really study tap dance in any sort of serious way. You know, it's that's really lacking, mm. and a lot of us are pushing for that to happen. But it's it's very slow, slow moving. I will say that Heather Cornell has managed to uh, start developing a um, um, a program at Hope University in oh. Michigan, where she is now teaching, a professor, uh, that is a um, percussive dance and music minor, where you are literally 
part of the music and dance program at the same time. It is wow. both. It is not just a dance degree and it's not just a music degree. It's a percussive music and dance wow. degree, which is unique. Nobody has ever done that. It's and blowing my mind that that hasn't been done already, but <clears throat> that's also no, because awesome. academia is slow yes. and, uh, you know, kind of a little bit backwards. Uh, so now, you know, that's definitely moving forward. And um, I hope other other departments and other universities will follow suit and see like, oh, percussive dance is a real instrument. Yeah, it's, it's not percussion. just it's percussion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if it is taught and practiced as such, it can be used just like any other serious percussion instrument, whether yes. it be you know, the timpani or the pandero or the timbales or the djembe, you know, they're all legit instruments that are difficult to master. And if you can read music and if you know about various styles Mm -hmm. of music and how to adjust, then you're a legit musician. Yes. You know, and the same applies to percussive dance. Yes. If If you have control of your instrument, you know, mastery of your instrument, um, and you are flexible enough and versatile enough to adjust to various musical situations and Mm -hmm. and let's say artistic situations that might be crossing over between one style and and another style then you are a legitimate artist you know who can do anything in any setting you you just they hand you a sheet of music and you're like oh that's the information here we go got it one two one two three four What's the clave on this one? How's this, what's the exactly, pattern? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, was, that was awesome jamming the other night when and you were letting us know more about clave related knowledge. Really, I mean, a lot of that stuff applies as becoming a percussionist. You would need to also understand those types of things if you're going to jam with other musicians. Absolutely, yeah. As you're talking about this too, I, I think a lot of tap dancers might consider their instrument to be the taps on their shoes, but I feel like that's for me it doesn't I, I don't think the taps on my shoes are the actual instrument i feel like the floor is the instrument that i'm playing more so than my feet i feel like the feet are like the drumsticks being hitting the drums rather than the drums themselves although you have some beautiful areas in your work that you blur both because you're hitting your actual body with your hands and with that you're becoming the drum as well that's with true that that's true yeah I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you um, that the floor is the instrument. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the floor is the instrument, uh, which is part of the information that the public needs to understand better. Yeah. Because presenters and theater owners and studio owners that deal with presenting tap dance mm-hmm. are not aware of this. They think... You bring your tap shoes, that's really all you need. That mm-hmm. is not correct. We need a surface that sounds good. Yes. You know, it's like expecting a drum set player to just sit down anywhere and just because he has drumsticks, yeah. he can play drums. You're a drummer, right? Right, exactly. Drum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like, yeah, here, you got a table, uh, you got a, uh, there's a lamp, you can hit the lamp, you know, it's like that. Found object drumming. Found, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, that's also a thing, but if, you're, sure. but if you're expecting the sound of a drum set, you yes. have to provide a drum set. Yes. And that's the same here. If you expect real tap sound, you need to give us a real tap floor, because mm-hmm. we can't bring it on the plane. You True. Know? Or, I mean, we can pack it into a, into a truck, 
but you know, you need to give us a million dollars so we can do that. That's expensive. <laughs> right. You got to um, first build the floor. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's not neuroscience no. to build a good tap floor. You just have to know that that's what, what is needed. True. You know? That and I've also been as you're saying this, it's making me think about the the communication of that to the people that are presenting what we're doing. If it's a theater or if it's a studio or something like this, this is actually a, a subject that when I was going to record a, a podcast by myself in the future, I was going to talk about tech writers. But mm. right now, it's coming through, so this is beautiful as it is. But to articulate these things that we need those in the first place, it's sometimes on the performer to communicate that to the venue to it's, let them know what it's we need always on the performer mm, thank you, know? you all right always yeah uh unless you have a good agent a really good agent yes. who is who knows and understands what you need and is able to communicate that without you doing it but right. most of the time it ends up being the performer who has to like make sure that the tech writer has all the details in it yes so that the uh the venue is informed but as i said like it doesn't take that much to build a decent floor for tap dancing no you know you just need to understand the concept of resonance mm -hmm. resonance and warmth you know um so that it can sound like an instrument and not like a joke exactly you know because you know marley marley is not a tap floor and masonite isn't really a tap floor either right you know you need a surface that can produce a decent attack mm -hmm. and sound from the quality of the material that's that's made from and you also need resonance underneath the floor there needs to be air that mm -hmm. can vibrate you know otherwise if you want the sound of a guitar you can't just put strings on a broomstick you know right some people might think oh that's wood and that string that should sound good nope you need to have some hollow wooden box that you put the strings on. That's what makes the sound, mm -hmm. you know? It's not just the string and it's not just the wood. It's the air inside mm -hmm. the wood that makes it sound nice and warm. <laughs> yeah. So that concept is not commonly understood. Right. I, I think it's, I've had it advantage in that area at least where i've gotten some knowledge of drumming because for a while i worked at guitar center in their drum department that was one of my early jobs that i did and we had people from dw come in and explain the reason that they mounted the the lugs on the side of the drums in the way that they did was so that you could then you know it's it's not um preventing the drum from resonating anymore because so they they don't put so much hardware on the sides of the drums exactly where yeah. it goes all the way along the side mm. it's it's smaller little bits and that allows the wood of the drum to still resonate which yeah, yeah. makes a beautiful sound yeah no and, and that's exactly the same thing you know our floor is our drum mm -hmm. and all the same principles uh, apply yes you know you need a decent surface to hit Yes. And you need a decent body of the drum to resonate. And the better the body of the drum, the better quality wood, and the more uh, air is available, mm -hmm. the better the sound. You know, the more the more air in volume, the lower the sound. Also, like if you have a you know like the tom tom. You sure. know, if you have a ten inch tom tom, mm -hmm. it's going to be higher in pitch than a sixteen inch inch tom tom. Of course, that makes sense yeah. to everybody. You know. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the integrity of the drum is important. And the more holes you put into the drum, the worse the sound. And the more you know? screws and things that you... Right. And so taking just, taking just a piece of plywood and putting it on a bunch of rubber knobs 
doesn't give you a good sound. Mm-hmm. It gives you a little bit of a sound, but not really good sound. Yeah. What makes the difference is that you create a box or at least a platform. Mm. So there is some air enclosed, you know. Yeah. But you also need to make sure that you don't only enclose the air, but you also provide one opening for the air to come through. Like portholes. Exactly. Well, just one. Yes, like on an acoustic Not multiple. guitar has a big hole in the that's, middle. That's the concept. Think of the acoustic or guitar. Or cajon has the big or hole. Or cajon. That's, the, that's exactly what you need to think about. Yeah? If you build a cajon for your tap dancing, then you've got something. Or a conga drum or a bongo. Exactly. Like they all have a hole on the bottom. That's what, Djembe, you said That's earlier. what makes a decent tap floor. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And then you can also mic it, you know, appropriately. Yeah. And then that's what I do when I record, you know. Yes. Uh, so you... You have somewhere to put the mics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, so when when you're miking a floor, what? Uh, when you're doing your live show, do you travel with your own floor that you're bringing with you? Rarely. Okay. No, because that's usually just price wise, money wise, yeah. just forbiddingly expensive. You need a vehicle to transport exactly. it. All yeah. that. Um, I usually make the venue build floors. Oh, okay. F- build platforms, wow. which is not outrageous because no. most venues have a shop you know yes. um and some venues even have platforms sure you know because sometimes just band risers orchestra risers cor- chorus risers uh sound decent mm-hmm. you just need to see what kind they are so they don't rattle mm-hmm. you know but uh some risers are actually pretty decent in sound um nice. uh but yeah I, i've gotten venues to build platforms very very basic it's not expensive you know it's like basic lumber you just need to know how to yeah and then uh um and then you just put four of them together and you have a stage that sounds really really good yeah you know can even be too loud sometimes that's like 16 by 8 if you right make a big rectangle out of that right exactly yeah so i've done that a lot well that's a wonderful idea i've never even considered Telling them to build the floor and mm. then showing up with the floor already built. Exactly. That's, yeah. That's that's a nice, it's a nice feeling when you get there and like, yeah. there's the floor. Yeah, it's already ready. You didn't have to carry yeah. it in. And then also for some venues, they can use it for other things. Because yes. if you have that resonant floor with a sound hole, mm-hmm. if you put a cello on that floor with the spike on the floor, that's a natural amplifier of the natural cello sound. That is a good idea. So it's something that they can actually use in the in the future, you know. Yeah. Um, and I've gotten positive feedback from venues that said, "Oh, actually, you know, thank you for making us build these floors. We're using them all the time." Wow. Mm. Okay, if you were to build a, a floor out of a four by eight sheet of plywood and you put a frame around the bottom of it with some, perhaps some two by fours or something, where do you put the hole? Um, that's kind of up to where you want the microphone to be. Oh yes. Yeah. So uh, um, I usually put them just on the outside of the stage Mm because if you put various, a a number of them together, uh, you know, a couple of sides are going to be blocked, you know, so you have to make sure that the holes are on the outside. Yeah. So you can mic them appropriately. Um, And uh, I don't usually put the mics inside the hole. That is too intense a vibration. Mm -hmm. I put them a little bit outside the hole. Then you get a nice bass wave because bass waves are long Mm -hmm. because it's low sound. So... A little bit further back from the hole gives you a better bass response. 
Which is, I've also heard the same about miking bass drums. Of course. They don't, they, they don't always put the mic right up in, no. inside of it. No. Or I've seen people do this, but like a lot of sound guys that are typically better ones, they'll put it at a little bit of an angle so that it's kind of on a 90 degree angle or exactly. 45 degree angle from the beater, right. but it's kind of aimed in yeah. there. I mean, it, it's, it's all, it all depends on what kind of sound you're looking for. Mm. If you're only looking for the punch... Yeah. Like the attack, yeah. You can put it right up to the to the drum head, you know. Sure. Uh, and then you get that information. But if you're looking for resonance and warmth, some that boom. and like boom, yeah, then you need to move it back because the wave is longer. Right. So you need to distance yourself. Otherwise, the mic doesn't get the information really. Yeah. You know, it all depends on placement. Placement of the mic is the that's kind of the secret in the whole thing. And as a musician, I think these are things that we need to consider too, that sometimes Absolutely. tap dancers don't always think about, but these are, it's no. nice to have someone here that thinks in, about these kinds of things. And Sarah Reich was here mm. recently. She thinks about these types of things of too, musically, yeah. like how, yeah. how they're going about placing, placing the mics yeah. around. And, and that comes from recording, you know, yes. as soon as you start recording tap dance, you start thinking as a, recording engineer basically or you learn from the engineers and from their point of view what's important and you realize oh it's not all about how many mics i stick right on top of my feet yeah that doesn't it impacts uh what impacts the sound is which mics you use mm -hmm. where you point them mm -hmm. how many there are how many mics there are and where you place them yeah you know how far away from the from the source you mm -hmm. place them and different mics get different qualities of sound sure which then add to the whole you know but you have to think of uh microphones as instruments mm. you know microphones are not just witnesses microphones are instruments that's a good way to say that. yeah so um different kinds of microphones give you different aspects mm -hmm. of a round sound total just like when you, I mean, you've seen mic, you've seen microphones on a drum set. Yes. How drum sets are mic'd. Huh? There'll be a drum set that is pointing at the at the uh, hi hat and snare drum. Mm -hmm. There are individual mics for the tom toms, mm -hmm. and then there are overheads over the cymbals. Sure. Each microphone has a specific job. You know, it's like on a ship. You know, there's the guy that pulls this rope. There's a guy that hoists the sail. There's a guy that cleans the deck. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there's the captain. Who coordinates who does what huh? sure so that's how you have to think about microphones right. same thing you know and um you always want to also consider what what the sound is like when you're experiencing it as a listener you sure because as a listener you're not lying on the floor with your ear on the floor that's not no. how you listen to tap no. dance you stand a couple of feet back and you hear the sound as it unfolds in the room. Yes. You know, room sound. I'm just going to leave that. Room sound. Think about room sound. That's something that needs to be considered. Huh? But that's usually only thought about in the setting of uh, string music, strings, classical music, or uh, horn arrangements, you know, where you really have a bunch of saxophones or clarinets or flutes mm -hmm. because their sound unfolds in a room and that's what you really want huh? but that's actually also what you want to hear in tap dancing room sound is very important and yeah. once you realize what that does yeah when you have the mic set up the right way and then you listen to one at a time okay wow this is this this is this and then you combine them together mm -hmm. you get a whole other 
picture and you have much more uh many more options of changing the way it sounds yeah. by adding more bass more attack <clears throat> more mid-range and then room sound you know and room sound is something people usually barely barely ever think about you know when you're in a recording studio anyway yeah another thing that the sound engineer probably wouldn't care at all about is like um, if you were to ask them so how did my arms look when i just did that or you know they're not concerned with the look of it whatsoever i would assume not at all you probably have never gotten a critique like you need to stand up straight or anything like that you need to look up more or anything not in the recording studio no no. because you're going just for the sound we're trying to connect it to the other instruments right yeah man yeah um another level of consideration with my work is that i do so much body percussion Mm -hmm. i need the body mic'd just as much as i need my feet mic'd yes so that adds another microphone basically now if you're bare chested though while you're doing this no usually usually in in the in the recording studio that's one step too far oh okay unless you're specifically looking for that sound Okay. But like, like skin on skin, like on, on the body, mm-hmm. that pops so much it's that it's packed. almost too much. Yeah. Oh, wow. In the recording studio, I usually wear a shirt because that, 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 that just puts a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit like the pop filter on a microphone. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes even on a snare drum, people might put a towel over it while they're playing for, in a studio. For recording, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have recorded also bare-chested, but usually... I, I, I am wearing something mm-hmm. so that there's a difference between the sound of the hands. Oh, that's that's skin on skin. Yes. And that's that's with with a shirt on, you know, Yeah. that provides a difference in texture. You know? And that to me is is more interesting because then it sounds different. It's like going from a snare drum to a tom tom. Yeah? I don't want seven snare drums. No. Yeah. I want different texture and different uh, warmth. Some of it really like really harsh. Yes. Some of it not harsh at all. You know, that's cool. But that you think like that those types of details. Like, oh, absolutely. You hear tones within absolutely. different parts of your body. Absolutely, yeah. Um, every um, rhythm or phrase that I create that utilizes uh, body percussion, mm-hmm. I always think about exactly which sound of body percussion sounds best in this sequence you know it's never random it's never random it's like on the piano you know like if i play a c with my left hand Mm -hmm. i have 87 other options of hitting another key i have to think which i'm gonna use for me it's that important yeah it's not it's not never random never random no okay so rumba tap What's going on? What are you? What's going on in that world right now? Okay, um, there are a couple of gigs coming up. Um, one at um, University of Wisconsin Stevens oh, Point, yeah. February fourth. Wow! So uh, I had no idea. I'm gonna dri- I can drive out there for there that. That's not go. even too far from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I am very lucky that uh, I have my first call band. Uh, Excellent. playing with me uh, they're all three uh, all three musicians are Grammy winners multiple Grammy winners Wow. Samuel Torres on the congas mm. um, Felipe Fournier from Costa Rica on the vibes wow. 
and uh, um, Roman Filiu from Cuba mm-hmm. on the saxophone and flute. Mm. Uh, Samuel is from Colombia. Sorry, I mentioned didn't mention that. So those three are like you know they're major, major, major players in yeah. the Latin music and classical music scene. Wow. Yeah. And Samuel has written classical music for me for full, full orchestra. Um, and they speak the same kind of vocabulary that I have studied, mm-hmm. you know, because they're in Latin jazz. Um, <clears throat> and they also, of course, know a lot about their individual folklore from their country. You know, like Samuel knows a lot about um, uh, Colombian um, folklore, which there is tons of, of sure. course. Same with Felipe in Costa Rica and, of course, Roman with Cuba. Yeah. Uh, but we share a lot of common vocabulary so that's you know that's really fun to perform with these guys with these like i mean they're all masters yeah masters yeah so what is what is some of the common vocabulary because it sounds like all three of these people are from different areas as well like that's true what what's common between even though each one has individualized folklore within each country but like what is some of the common things about what you do with them the thing about all latin american countries that is a unifying element is that um, Cuban music has brought a level of musical sophistication mm. to the entire Caribbean and South America that is pretty much unparalleled. Uh, the reason for this is that Cuba was the first place in the Caribbean where serious, very, very dedicated classical training was available. Mm. The earliest like already in the late 1700s, uh, the, let's say the governing class, the white people from Spain, mm-hmm. were bringing major, major um, classical musicians and classical teachers yeah. to Havana in order to train the musicians there. Wow. And the tradition of first-rate classical music training in Havana or in Cuba, is the oldest in the entire Latin American uh, cultural sphere. Wow. Therefore, Cuban music has always had a slightly different standing. And everybody plays salsa all over the Latin American world. Mm -hmm. And salsa essentially is based on Cuban music. Yeah. With then added in regional flavors of course you sure <clears throat> when you talk about celia cruz you talk about tito puente of course like, yeah they're basically playing cuban music and they will all tell you that you know this is basically cuban music mm-hmm. with other f- factors added in you know sure. new york new york salsa sounds like new york salsa it doesn't sound the same as colombian salsa mm. and salsa in cali colombia sounds different from salsa in bogota colombia by sure. the way you know like it's regionally very, very specific because there's such a wealth of variety in every single country in the region. You know, every single island in mm-hmm. the Caribbean has its own tradition because of the ethnic mix and because it's individual history. And all these things are so important to understand. Yeah. I mean, for me, yeah. you know, but I, I believe that... Um, knowing a little bit more about that history and how everything is connected uh, gives you such a better understanding for everything because you then you start seeing the connections you know 
historically between all the factors, between mm-hmm. the, the African ethnic groups, when they were brought to Cuba, when they were brought to Peru, which ethnic groups, from where to where, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what the situation was, you know, uh, was there indigenous, indigenous population at the time? In Cuba, when the first Africans arrived, there was zero indigenous population there. They were already, they had already died. Wow. The Taino were dead by the time the Africans arrived. They had been wiped out mostly by the common cold. Wow. Yeah, because they had no, um, they had no antibodies, which now people understand what that means. Right. Yeah. They had no antibodies to the common flu because they lived in the Caribbean where it doesn't get cold, mm-hmm. you know. And then the Spaniards came from from Europe with the common cold and they catch the cold the, the Taino were dead you know there was like a, a there was a cold epidemic that wiped out basically the entire population wow yeah. so that's just you know that, that's one tiny little tidbit you know that is important to the way Cuban music sounds because if the Taino were still around when the Africans were around there would have been a little bit more Taino influence in the sound of Cuban music. Sure. But there isn't much, you know. The maracas are the only part of Taino influence that is still in Cuban music because the rattles come from the Taino culture. Really? Yeah. I always felt like that was more of an African connection, but maybe, oh, but that, yeah, that makes sense. Wow, I had no idea where they came from. That is really cool. And it's the same with in every country. There is a story like, or th- there are hundreds of stories like this. Yes. You know? uh, and every little, every little detail gives you more of a, uh, an angle to understand, oh, this is why this sounds like this, or this is why they did this, or this is why they recorded this, yes. this and that. You know? Charles Renato <clears throat> was on an episode a yeah. couple years ago, mm-hmm. and he was mentioning how he'll sometimes be judging dance competitions, and right. he'll notice people are doing the song Copacabana. <laughs> and they're out there with maracas and he was it it frustrates him because he's like that is very inaccurate like yeah. they would not even have maracas yeah in this and yeah brazil is not the place for maracas he's, that... like they should have panderos instead right yeah, yeah 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 well but that's that's exactly the the sort of like lack of communication and lack of information that i try to counteract yes by talking to people and and uh explaining things and performing Mm-hmm. And then in performance, also saying a couple of things about what it is we're doing and why we're doing it mm-hmm. um, so that these misunderstandings um, don't proliferate, you know, yeah. because frankly, s- such misunderstandings can also be taken as insults. Of course. Whether they are purposeful or not mm-hmm. is not the point. Like there is misinformation here and misrepresentation that is not that's not necessary. Right. You just need to find out more. You need to ask a couple of questions. And then when you know, you know, oh, okay, that, well, this is not appropriate. You know, um, let's, let's make sure that it's authentic or, you know, at least a little bit more respectful and not just like randomly, okay, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Coming from an informed place where, exactly. you, where you know what you're doing. And... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a journey. For sure, yeah. And <laughs> coming from a competition dance background and having done that since mm-hmm. I was like a little kid, mm-hmm. and then graduating high school, yeah. there's a whole world of stuff. Then I had to, yeah. But it was around the same time that Noise Funk was on Broadway, and like all these other things were happening around that same time too, where I was getting to learn more about history because mm-hmm. it was very prevalent sure. at the time too. Yeah. 
Jelly's Last Jam was a, a school field trip we went on. I got to oh, see cool. Maurice Hines perform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Savion was in that. Uh-huh. That really started opening up digging deeper. Sure. Oh, and for it, sure. It sounds yeah. like a lot of places where you go, and you were even talking about it earlier today, that when you're in a city, you like to try more localized places and learn about what that's all about. And same thing applies as you're going to New Zealand. And it seems like a lot of that's a common thread for you is like, you like to go soak in some of what they have to offer as much as I can. Because to me, to me, that is showing respect to the world at large. Yes. If I go somewhere, I travel, I travel to learn. Mm -hmm. I don't travel to conquer. I think that's the difference in mentality. Yeah. You know, um, if I go to a place, I don't look for what I usually have. You know, I don't look for McDonald's. No. Yeah? And I don't look for the schnitzel that I can eat at home in Vienna. I mean, I could go for a schnitzel could, for sure. But, right. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> sometimes. But at the first thing I look for is what, what do you eat? What does your cuisine yeah. What is your cuisine like? Yeah. What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Why does it taste like that? You know, I want to know. Even if I dislike the taste, I want to mm-hmm. taste it. And then I want to know why I'm why I don't like it. Ooh. You know, a lot of people don't think like that, but for me that's vitally important. Yes. And that goes for everything, not just for food. You sure. Know? Let me let me check out your park, let me check out your your uh vegetation, your forest the animals, you know, let me, let me hear your music. Yeah. I want to go where, where the locals go to listen to music. How, how do they dance? How do they show appreciation for the music? How do they show appreciation for performance? You know, if you've never been to Brazil and you go to a concert in Brazil, you'll be blown away by the fact that every single person in the audience knows every note and every word that the artist is singing on stage. Wow. And commonly, the entire audience is always singing along with everything the artist does on stage. Wow. Like, that's one of the things that's most impressive about, you know, going to concerts. Yes. Especially in Brazil. In Cuba, it's very similar. But the, because people live the music so much, mm-hmm. they, they know so much about what's going on on stage. You know, it's not something foreign. You, know. you, you show me an example when we were at the jam recently, you were showing an example of a recording that you made and you were standing behind a pianist. And at the very beginning of the recording, though, they got the audience clapping a clave pattern and right off the bat, they locked into it. And it was it was like nothing I'd ever heard before, how locked in the audience was as a percussion aspect. Like they were dialed in They were, They weren't timid about it. And it, it, that song was a good six, seven minutes long, and they were right there the whole time. Exactly, yeah. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, the amount of knowledge and appreciation and support that an audience can bring to a performance mm. is vital to the quality of culture in that community. Yeah. So if you have, a, a, you, if you have a, a, an audience in a venue of... 2,000, 3,000 people Mm -hmm. and you manage to get them to clap a kind of complex rhythm consistently for an entire song that says something about the culture. Yes. You know, that says something about the culture and about a common focus, you know, and a common appreciation for the music Mm -hmm. because they don't want to mess it up. They want the guy to play really well so they keep it together, you know. They give him the perfect foundation too. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Who was the pianist? 
His name was uh, Paquito Echevarria. Man. Uh, and he's a legendary Cuban pianist uh, who is on, uh, he played with the Miami Sound Machine. Oh, yes. That's and he, wow. is, he, is, he is the person, he is the piano player on uh, Do the Conga. conga yes. That's Paquito, yeah. Man. That was such a cool... And you said, as, as I remember, you were standing behind him with a cassette recorder. Basically, yeah. Walkman. It was live yeah. in con- concert. And you were yeah. Just... It was at Town Hall. Uh, in New York. And uh, it was a, uh, a concert of the best Cuban musicians that are outside of Cuba. Wow. They all came together, brought together by um, this legendary trombone player, um, Juan Pablo Torres, mm. who I was working with at the time. I was in his, uh, in his band. Yeah, and uh, he was putting on this show, and he brought together uh, a lot of people from all different generations. You know, there was uh, Jose Fajardo, who was already like eighty-six or eighty-seven years old. Wow, one of the legendary uh, Cuban flautists from the charanga tradition, who lived in New York, and it was it was sort of like having you know Buster Brown and Honey Coles, yeah, of Cuban music, on the same stage with. Uh, you know, Gregory Hines and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So various different uh, generations uh, represented the, wow. of the top of Cuban music. Vocalists, Was musicians. Arturo Sandoval there? Playing he was trumpet? not there. Okay. He, he was not there. Um, but, you know, a lot of amazing people. Yeah. And uh, it was just an experience that I'll, you know, treasure forever. Because, yeah. And just, you know, I mean, I have performed in Cuba, mm-hmm. which is another beautiful thing to experience. Uh, but even for, for performing in New York, having a house full of lots of Cubans, not only Cubans, but lots of Cubans, yeah. is still a very unique experience. Yeah. yeah. Man. Yeah. I, I, one of the podcasts I've listened to for a long time was originally called The Church of What's Happening Now with Joey Coco Diaz, and he's from Cuba. So like, uh-huh. he tells a lot of stories about growing up in New York as a Cuban-American. And so this is, this is just reminding me of, of that as well, like remembering that there's such a large population in new york of absolutely Cuban yeah 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 people and has always been too mm. you know this is something that i try to tell people too to be aware that the relationship between cuba and the united states is you know essentially 200 plus years old sure because uh, havana is a port city matanzas is a port city mm-hmm. new orleans is a port city mm-hmm. new york is a port city yeah. So you port know, authority right this, there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was the, you know, it was the ocean internet. You know, those were the connections where the information was going mm. by ship, you know, via sailors, via uh, cargo, you know, and intellectual ideas that kept going back and forth. But, you know, as as early as, um, yeah, the, the, in the 19th century, there was a huge interaction between uh, United States and Cuba musically. Um, uh, Louis Moreau Gottschalk is an mm. important piano player and um, orchestra leader and and uh, composer and arranger who is not often mentioned. He yeah. he was uh, in the 19th century. He was a huge star because he was a child prodigy piano player. He was from New Orleans. Mm. Uh, of half Jewish, half French heritage, mm-hmm. but got in contact with the African vibe of New Orleans early on and uh, and just started playing a lot of classical music wow. and being a performance artist, you know, like a real um, star 
performer all yeah. over the world. Like he yeah. would, he would travel, you know. And in the 1830s, 1840s, he would go to uh, Cuba, wow. and he fell in love with Cuban music and with the Cuban audiences. He was deeply impacted by the groove in Cuba, and he yes. wrote a lot of. Uh, piano pieces and mm -hmm. orchestra pieces influenced by Cuban music. Mm. The most famous one is La Bambula. Let's look it up. I'm definitely going yeah. to. And uh, he was such a huge star. He was able to mount um, like these sort of monster concerts. Mm. Very similar to Johann Strauss from Austria. Because mm -hmm. Johann Strauss was a huge star back then too, internationally. Yes. He was, I mean, you have to think of these people like being like the Michael Jacksons of their day. I mean, Austria was like one of the music capitals of the world. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Straight up. And, and uh, most people don't know this, but Johann Strauss toured to the United States. And Johann Strauss did a monster concert in New York City with 1,000 musicians playing. Wow. He literally played a concert with 1,000 musicians and 100 subconductors. Sub was it, That's he, how big he was. Mainly he was. known for waltzing, exactly. Too, right? yeah. Waltz tempos. Yeah. yeah, he he took the waltz from being just a little folk tune, mm -hmm. you know, that people played with a guitar and like a violin and a clarinet. Yeah, in the Schrammel tr tradition of Viennese sort of folk music. Yeah, uh, and he put it onto the full orchestra. Wow. He made it. He made it sort of like salon worthy. But there were statues of him there, as I oh, remember, yeah. too. Oh, no, he's like, you know, he's as important, almost as important as Mozart. Yeah, in, and I remember Austria. Mozart had like a theater, there was a theater with a Mozart show running at the time, I think. That's true, too. Yeah, they there. did a musical. Uh, that, I think yeah. that's what, yeah, that's yeah. what, I didn't go to it, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> I saw yeah, no. it was being advertised, and it looked yes. very, like, Broadway-esque kinds of yeah, posters yeah, 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 and yeah. things. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Mozart is a national hero, but so yes. is Johann Strauss. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. They define part of the Austrian soul. For sure, wow. yeah, and um, and part of the Austrian soul is also Austrian folk music, mm -hmm. which you know waltz is basically Austrian folk music, just taken to a orchestral level. Yeah, you know? and uh, and the, these sort of uh, mega concerts were a thing back then. You know, like in eighteen forty, you have to imagine like you know filling something like Carnegie Hall or Radio City Music Hall mm -hmm. with thousands of people and an orchestra that is humongous yeah and Louis Moreau Gottschalk did the same in Havana wow with huge orchestras yeah and he performed with the Havana Symphony uh, and and his presence impacted the music in in Cuba too you know and his appreciation for Cuban music and uh he brought the the love for Cuban music into the United States as well. Mm -hmm. He is partly responsible for pe people kind of like becoming aware that Havana even existed. Wow! You know, because he played these these pieces that had Cuban rhythm in him, uh, and Cuban rhythm means clave. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so I just I like to mention his name because he was important in 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 bringing some Cuban culture to the United States. Yeah. at a time when most people don't even think about this exchange happening right yeah was he originally from new orleans is that yes. what you said because yeah. when i think of new orleans and i think of piano players i think of people like james booker who also mm -hmm. had a definite sure. cuban influence in what he was doing yeah i think of dr john i think of, of alan toussaint yeah well think yeah think you can even think of scott joplin although he was not from yes. from new orleans but uh and jelly roll morton even absolutely too. Yeah. yeah uh and what they all refer to as the latin tinge was nothing else but cuban piano playing Wow, you know? and it's very percussive. I mean, the piano is yeah. already a percussive yeah. 
percussion instrument, yeah. but they're really hitting them. Yeah. Well, and they they have in their piano playing, they have the essential Cuban element. Yeah. So you know, you know Scott Joplin. Every, everybody knows Scott Joplin yeah. music. Da 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 dun da dun da dun da 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 dun da dun dun. Check it out. Da 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 dun da dun da dun. Da 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 dun da 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 dun dun dun. Okay. Oh, it even does the dun dun at the end. Exactly. So ragtime is essentially Cuban piano. So it's three two. That was three two. Yeah. Wow. So I've never connected that. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> it's uncanny once you know about it, but there there are Cuban piano pieces from the mid eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Wow. Also by Cuban composers. Yeah. Um, Ignacio Cervantes is mm. one that I'll mention. You know, who already in eighteen forty wrote piano pieces that have a funky bassline, like funky tumbao bassline, mm. uh, that you wouldn't expect from a classical piano piece but in in Cuba that was already happening well, yeah? if you if you before, that before the United States when a lot of people would attribute rock and roll music to have been born out of obviously the blues but also New Orleans sure music yeah. and if Cuba is part of what influenced that in the first place then that backbeat and that bassline and all that stuff that became funk and all these other mm-hmm. things were then influenced also yeah. through that same channel absolutely i mean uh Cuba and especially New Orleans or Havana and New Orleans mm-hmm. were also always very closely connected. Um, and the element of the clave or the, 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 this, this idea of uh, contract release or mm-hmm. tension and release, question and answer in the rhythmic flow, yeah. you know, the rhythmic key of clave, that definitely came from Cuba to the U.S. for sure. Uh, How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Yes. Um, the the backbeat, that's another thing. Mm. That's something that came from America to Cuba. Huh? Ah. So there's always an exchange. Uh, I, I try to explain this always as part of what I teach. Mm-hmm. The clave is very much a Cuban concept. Mm-hmm. But if you if you attend a performance in Cuba and there's great percussion going on, uh, when they do a, a breakdown where all of a sudden everything drops out and they just have the audience sing, mm-hmm. they will make the audience clap like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Which in the U.S. would not happen. You know, like especially in a black uh, environment. Yeah, in they Minnesota would, it would happen, but it's, right, it's yeah, on the wrong... It's that's the, a different, it feels like the wrong beat. That's a different story, just yes. like in Austria. Yeah. Yeah. The Austrian clave is like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Now we got it. One, two, three, four. I'm glad to have an Austrian-born person to articulate that. I would have never thought to connect it like this, but that was hilarious. Yeah, the yeah. Austrian clave. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in in African American music, the two and four mm-hmm. is the thing that makes it totally essentially american yes the idea of in cuba exactly yeah in cuba nobody in their right mind would automatically clap on two and four they will clap clave sure yeah and that's well, very complex. It is. It is like very complex. That in there. But the two and four is a different way of feeling. You yes. Know? It's a different uh, level of complexity 
different kind. Yeah, that's not assigning quality. It's mm-hmm. just different. Yeah, yeah? absolutely. And, and that vibe in Cuba doesn't really exist. Yeah? It's a different energy. It's a different drive mm-hmm. yeah? and a different counterbalance in the, in the, in the music. Yeah? So the two and four and the idea of adding the backbeat, mm-hmm. yeah? um, that's a very American thing. Yeah. Nice. Or yeah. African American thing. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all these things are interrelated uh, because a lot of these things a lot of these things came from Cuba to the United States. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, jazz happened mostly in the United States. And Cuban musicians dig and have always dug jazz. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Cuban musicians went to the United States before the revolution when that's right. possible, you know. And Dizzy uh, Gillespie had a connection down there too. Yeah, that's a little bit of a long story, but Dizzy Gillespie <laughs> yeah. Dizzy Gillespie worked in a lot of big bands before he became a star, you mm-hmm. know. He played in the Earl Hines big band with Charlie Parker mm-hmm. and they were just in the horn section and he traveled with the Cab Calloway Orchestra mm. for quite a while. The one that was playing with the Nicholas Brothers in exactly. the famous Stormy Weather clip. Yes, exactly. That's the Cap Crowley band. Heidi, 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 Heidi. Exactly. And um, in the same Cap Calloway orchestra, in the trumpet section, the next chair over from Dizzy Gillespie was a Cuban musician by the name of Mario Bausa. Wow. And Mario Bausa was a multi-instrumentalist. He played trumpet and saxophone. Uh, and he was a great composer and arranger. And... And he was uh, Dizzy's roommate on tour. Oh. And that was the first source of information about Cuban culture for Dizzy Gillespie. Oh. Because he was rooming with Mario. And Mario hipped him to kind of what's, what's up. That's you know? cool. And, uh, and then the more he found out, you know, Mario would also introduce him to other Cuban musicians that lived mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. And Dizzy immediately knew, wow, this is, this is really beautiful and amazing and profound and is so connected to his own african-american culture mm-hmm. but different you know and he respected it and loved it for that reason and then he had the idea oh now i have my own big band you know mm-hmm. like in 1945 46 he started his own big band and he said i want to have a cuban percussionist in my big band mario who should i get oh. and mario said well uh my cousin just got married and this and her husband um is this great percussionist and composer who is just moving now to New York from Havana. His name is Chano Pozo. Wow. Yeah. So Chano Pozo was, was by marriage related to, um, to Mario Bausa. And uh, he, Mario introduced Dizzy Gillespie to Chano Pozo and they started immediately you know, working together. And uh, Dizzy was trying to get more and more... Um, information and inspiration from Chano mm-hmm. and vice versa. And in, in some interviews, you can see this online. Uh, Dizzy said, yeah, you know, it was, it was a little difficult to communicate at the beginning because um, I didn't speak Spanish mm-hmm. and Chano didn't speak any English. But then when, Ch- when they asked Chano in an interview how they communicate, Chano would say, Dizzy no Spanish. Yo no speak English. We speak Africa. This is basically, I'm basically quoting Dizzy Gillespie yeah. uh, in this interview. And he said, we just communicated through music, through his drums, you know. And, uh, and Chano Pozo is the person who actually composed uh, most of Manteca. 
mm. you know. And Dizzy said, uh, Chano would just sing this. He would just sing. A, he would sing a line to me, you know, like he would start with like, yeah, saxo. Boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing. And I just wrote it down, you know. And then he said, ah, the throwmoning. Melodia. And Dizzy just kept writing, you know. So Chano really composed the song and Dizzy wrote it down, you know. But it was just a groove. It was just that groove, that part. And did Chano also read? No, he didn't write music. Okay. Uh, but it didn't matter because Dizzy could do that. Yeah, you of know. So um, and then once they had the the basic outline of that, Dizzy and and the arranger, I think it was Gil Fuller for this one. Um, um, they said, okay, well, this is an amazing thing, but mm-hmm. we can't just have the groove. You know, this needs to have a B section because remember, this was 1946, mm-hmm. uh, and at that point, just having a groove recorded in the in the states would not fly. Uh, so Dizzy composed a bridge, you know, that had like a sort of like a bebop or traditional jazz kind of chord sequence and mm-hmm. a little melody. And then it would go back to the groove. Uh, but the and, and then the song became a huge hit. It was the biggest hit that the Dizzy Gillespie big band ever had. Wow. And now it's a jazz standard. You Does it mean butter? Is that what manteca is? Manteca means grease, really. Grease. Or, or, okay. or lard, essentially. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it's also the word, uh, it's also the Spanish sort of like slang word for heroin oh okay yeah. so that's an important is that what they're referencing note. with the title absolutely okay because i think a mantequilla is butter. that's literally butter yeah yeah manteca is is grease grease yeah. lard sure yeah. sure but some people used it also Smack. To Smack. yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> wow so um but that was a huge huge hit yeah wow um i have a version of arturo sandoval sure. on, on an album doing that one absolutely yeah that was uh, my point of reference. There you go. Yeah, Samuel, the uh, Samuel Torres, who plays with me in in my group, uh, he played with Arturo Sandoval for many many years. Yeah, I got touring. to see him yeah. here at the Dakota in oh, Minneapolis, okay. the jazz club that we have, and then okay. he also played uh, trumpet for the processional of a wedding that I went to out in California for some wow. for some friends of ours that are wow. You know, the, those are some connected Hollywood friends. friends of, oh, I see. They, yeah. They, um, yeah, he played as they walked yeah, down the yeah. aisle. It was so beautiful. That's it was amazing, just his yeah. trumpet. Yeah. Blew my mind. Yeah. So, yeah, to me, Manteca is also a proto version or sort of like a harbinger of, yeah. of funk. Mm. Because it was just one on one chord. It's like mm-hmm. C7 for a long time. Kind of like Caravan. Yeah. yeah. Caravan is a little bit similar, but Manteca does it in an even more pronounced way. Just arranged for big band, for jazz big band and not yeah. for a funk orchestra. Sure. Because back then they didn't have the electric bass yet. Huh? No, but if you if Chano Pozo had not died in 1948, uh, he might have been one of the architects of funk. He wasn't too far from the electric bass coming out either at that point. Not the 50s. yeah, but it, it was still yeah 50s yeah. Um, I mean like the was, Beatles they had an electric bass. Yeah yeah no but the, I they mean were more 60s, the, in the 50s that stuff was already starting to be used in rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but that, that was the late 50s. And yeah. Chano was unfortunately shot Because Buddy Holly still had the upright. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Rock Around the Clock, I think that was still an that upright. That was still upright bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I don't know offhand like when the first electric bass no, was No, this is making me I think. Like, I, I, should, I should go down that rabbit hole as well because I, I don't know I either. I should know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, the, uh, that recording is, is very significant mm. for the history of Afro-Cuban music, for the history of Afro-Cuban jazz, for the yeah. history of Latin jazz, salsa, you know, and the cultural convergence between African and American culture. Wow. Hugely important. Yeah. So it's Manteca, and it's Manteca. the version that Dizzy Gillespie recorded. Yes, absolutely, yeah. That's awesome. I got I to gotta crank that and later check, on too. And check out not only the studio recordings, mm -hmm. but check out the live recordings oh. of Manteca, because they did this stuff live, and one thing that, I mean, not many people know about Chano Pozo to begin with, unfortunately. No. Um, but one thing about him that was outstanding was that he was an unbelievable performer. Mm. He played the drum. He played congas very, very well. He's recorded hundreds of albums in, in Havana. Yeah. Uh, he, also record, he also composed a gazillion songs. Wow. Although he didn't write music, he would just sing the stuff. And somebody would write it down, and then he would come up with lyrics, with funny lyrics. He was f he was just a funny street kind of musician, you sure. know, who was incredibly creative, and he was an amazing rumba dancer, you know, and because he grew up in uh, in very very African rooted uh, Havana, mm -hmm. he also represented the Afro Cuban religion, Santeria. With yes. the Yoruba gods and uh, the Abakwa, which is a, a secret society that also comes from Nigeria, which has a different drumming tradition than the Santeria. So he, sure. he came charged with all this amazing cultural information that was not present in the United States. And then with Dizzy, he was given a platform to perform this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he would literally get out on stage and with his drum around his back, he would start singing and drumming. And people had never seen that. Um, you know, Ricky Ricardo was later. Yeah. But Ricky Ricardo was essentially kind of imitating what Chano Pozo was doing. Sure. You know? Side note, that's who I was named after. Oh, really? Yeah, my oh, mom cool. loved I Love Lucy. So that's brilliant. <laughs> she yeah. called me Ricky. She still calls me Ricky. That's cute. <laughs> with <laughs> an I, not with a Y, for whatever reason. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, and there's, there's a lot of uh, stories, stories or things to talk about Ricky Ricardo himself. You know, yes. or I mean, uh, that, that cultural part of cuba coming to the u.s is another story but was that seen as like an appropriation and he's like cashing in on something or what, what? Mm, no i need to he, dig into that one now too well yeah i mean he was he was um uh um desi arnez was mm -hmm. the son of the governor of oriente the eastern part of Cuba. Oh. So he was the son of a well-known politician. So he was a wow. wealthy white kid, essentially. Okay. However, he was deeply into music mm -hmm. right away. And his father did not approve. His father did not approve. So he spent most of his time hanging out with black people, mm -hmm. playing the music, learning the music, recording the music. Mm -hmm. And his father wanted him to be a politician or a doctor or whatever. So they had a falling out. And... Uh, um, Desi Arnaz decided to go to the U.S. so he could do what he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and you know, he became, everybody knows, you know, he became a pop star. Right. And he represented, he represented part of the African heritage of Cuba. But mostly people didn't quite know that that's what it was because he was white. Mm -hmm. You know, and at that point, 
it wasn't quite accepted to talk about that. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just, he was like Elvis Presley. He was amazing at what he was doing. Yeah. He was drawing from African culture in Cuba. Yeah. And he was doing it very well. Yeah. And it went over and it became a success, you know. Right. But like his most famous song, Babalu, you know, yeah. that thing that yeah. people recognize of that generation. He was singing a song about Babalu Aye, which is an Afro-Cuban Yoruba deity of disease, mm. you know. But nobody in the U.S. knows that that's what he was saying. There used to be a jazz club in Minneapolis called Babalu. Exactly. We had one in New York, too. Yeah. But that, that's the cultural ignorance that I'm talking yes. about that leads to, uh, that leads to misunderstandings, mm-hmm. you know, and to people feeling hurt. And I feel like Fred like, Astaire is another example of this type of thing. Like people put him on such a pedestal, but he was borrowing from a lot of other people that came before him. And yeah, I mean, uh, I wouldn't put him on the same level as that. But yeah, of course. I mean, clearly, what what the American, you know, what Hollywood was doing yeah. was essentially the same thing. Yeah, because then it got associated more with a white person. Then exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, and and. Uh, uh, Fred Astaire studied, literally studied with Bojangles. Right. Like he learned stuff from and Bojangles. Bubbles too, right? Th- or that I'm not aware of, but okay. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But that was never said. That was never said. Okay. Yeah. So it was, oh, so like I know he was getting private lessons from true tap masters. And absolutely. He, and absolutely. He, he was definitely a wonderful dancer and a yeah. wonderful performer yeah. and did a wonderful job. But it's like, it's, I'm hearing parallels that are happening with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that's the, that's the dark, the the darkest side of of cultural history, you know. Yeah. That these uh, that the roots were not mentioned, you know, and, and people were not talking, referenced. And you were talking earlier too about like how when you get to know people's folklore, their their yeah. their folkloric stories, and their that's also where you start to learn more of the backgrounds of where these things come from. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it get, it always gets murky and difficult when something that is folklore mm-hmm. becomes popular culture, mm-hmm. you know, popular culture can be the most difficult and poisonous thing mm-hmm. for true folklore, you know, and that happened with the movies and that happened with rock and roll. And mm-hmm. that happened in my country, in Austria with, with Austrian folk music, like yeah. waltz or it, not waltz. No, um, just, um, basically what you would call umpa music. You okay. Know? got really popular uh, and popularized in a very, very horribly commercialized version that has nothing really to do with the original intention of it. Is that uh, connected to music that sounds more like along the line of polka? Yes, exactly. That's okay. what I'm saying, umpa, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it lost its soul. They took the soul out to make it sell better. Mm. You know? And that's basically, the, that's the truth for all of these things. Folklore, real true folklore is roots music mm-hmm. that has soul and that has a connection to to the true heritage of the people. Yes. Which usually has an edge. Yes. You know, and some sort of message of mutual support or of criticism or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when people when when people want to make money with it, they always take the edge off mm-hmm. and they inject foam. Yeah, mm. and fluff mm-hmm. to make sure it doesn't have any message anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's non-threatening, like hip hop music. At one point, yeah, absolutely. And then it got, you know, they went into the gangster realm with it, and then it whatever gained another edge. What what 
whatever folklore tradition mm-hmm. all over the world this happens sure in all ethnicities in all countries this kind of thing goes on when people want to make a lot of money mm-hmm. and don't care about where the stuff comes from they just want to cash in they take the edge off and they inject it with fluff mm. with you know non-content to make sure people don't have to think and they can just consume uh, they can take the thing out of the wrapper eat it throw away the wrapper and never think about it again and that's not what folklore is really about no folklore wants you to feel folklore want folklore wants you to listen folklore wants you to experience and to uh take away something with you yes you know folklore is information you know does so. rumba music attached to folklore oh yeah rumba music is folklore so where where does it originate rumba originates um in cuba it's a truly cuban art form mm-hmm. it's not african it's not pure african it's like jazz jazz is african partly mm-hmm. but not only african right uh, uh to me rumba and and jazz are like brother and sister they are the uh the mezcla they are the mi- the mix they represent the cultural mix of the country where they were born uh. <clears throat> so rumba has heavy heavy roots of course in west africa specifically in the congo mm-hmm. uh. also partly yoruba but mostly actually rumba music is mostly based on congolese patterns okay and it's pretty old because the congolese people were the first people that came over from west africa or came over were brought over sure um against their will yeah. yes so the people from the congo which includes bantu people really short and stocky warrior wow. people yeah uh and they they had drums uh like the conga drums mm-hmm. yeah. that's why the conga drums are called conga drums yeah. congo conga yeah. um and um the patterns in rumba that are being used now mm-hmm. are based on congo music essentially yeah um but that's not the only ingredient there's also information from spain there is uh, a way of singing a way of rhyming that comes from spain from rural spain where the decima is a is a, a form of poetry yeah. where you rhyme in 10 line units oh, yeah this wow. is, that's why it's called decima yeah so that found its way into rumba in africa it's not done like that yeah Um so rumba is a true blend of cultures. It represents the African heritage, it represents the Spanish heritage. Uh, and rumba dance is of course heavily based on African movement. Mm-hmm. And some of the movements are really fluid, some of them are 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 sharp. Uh some of them represent uh the mating ritual of birds. Wow. Yeah. Like the arm movements, some of the arm movements that the men make and the women are based on, you know, birds fluffing their feathers to look bigger. Wow. That's why the elbows are so important and the fluffy the fluffy shirts that you see in, yes. in old Cuban movies that's basically to 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 symbolize the feathers on the on on the animal, uh, to make wow. make you look bigger. Uh, and all the bright colors probably. Also, sure. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then rumba also contains information from flamenco dance mm. because of the spanish heritage that's not african no. but it's intrinsically cuban huh? uh and that's what hit me about rumba it 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 it, it was a reflection of the cuban identity mm-hmm. of the true cuban ad- identity which is both 
just as jazz and tap dance is a reflection of the true American identity, which is both. Yeah, and you can't take one out. Mm -hmm. It will disappear if you take one out. You know? So in that sense, to me, rumba and jazz are like brother and sister. Mm -hmm. yeah, from the same mother, yeah, but with slightly different fathers, let's just say. Sure. Yeah. Hey, it still works. Yeah. Everyone's still brothers then. Yeah. All right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Aren't the cajon drums, are those from Cuba as well? Not originally. Okay. Uh, the cajons basically originate in Peru, actually. Oh. That's where they were used Like shipping first. containers? Yeah, shipping drums? containers, uh, um, uh, you know, boxes for candles, boxes for bacalao, which is codfish, oh. um, um, drawers from nightstands turned over. Yeah. Oh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because now they're like really fancy. You can go into Guitar Center right. and buy a perfectly sanded box, and it's yeah, like yeah. got a nice hole in the back and right, right, snare right, yeah. things yeah. in it. Yeah, no, but um, uh, the cajon wasn't widely used until the eighties. The cajon nineteen eighties, nineteen eighties. Okay. Yeah. Uh, basically, it was only played. It was played in Cuba and it was played in Peru, but it was played in Peru even before it was played in Cuba. Wow. Yeah. Um, in Peru, it's really heavily part of the percussion heritage um and it only found its way into popular culture through paco de lucia mm. paco de lucia's band had a percussionist since the beginning but he was playing bongo oh he was playing bongo and then in the late 70s i forget exactly when this tour was uh paco de lucia went to peru and in peru for the first time he saw people playing cajon and he immediately realized, oh, this would work really well with mm -hmm. flamenco. So he, he basically got a cajon for his percussionist and said, tonight you play this instead of the bongo. Wow. And everybody loved it, especially Paco. And, uh, and from then on, his percussionist was already playing cajon. And they went back to Spain with the cajon. And in Spain, everybody went, whoa. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's the instrument. Boom. And they switched to cajon. And that's where, that's where the worldwide uh, sort of like uh, wave of cajon originated mm. from Paco de Lucia's percussionist bringing the Peruvian cajon into Spain. And from there, it's spreading out. Uh, wow. So you could just be on a trip somewhere and you just happen to have a piece of luggage with you that yeah. has this special thing in there. And then exactly. now all of a sudden it ignites a whole thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. But in Cuba, in Cuba, they, they also have been using cajon for a long time because in Cuba drums were also outlawed oh sure for a very long time and for uh, the same reason as here like based, because yeah basically slave yeah. revolt or yeah. enslaved people like re signaling revolts to that, other yes yeah exactly um wow. that that's a, a little bit of a lo longer story there's a little bit more to that for sure um but essentially um for a long time it was illegal to play drums out in public wow yeah? you could play them on the plantation Okay. In, in your sort of cultural hut mm -hmm. that were allowed by the by the Spanish slave owners, mm. they allowed a, a a place on the plantation where the Africans were allowed to actually practice their cultural heritage oh. and have cultural implement, implements of their African heritage uh, and make drums and have drums, but mm -hmm. only in that little house that was called the cabildo. So it doesn't ring out into the world. It's exactly. Just like exactly. In the walls. In public, you couldn't do it, but you wow. were allowed to have it inside there. Uh, but when people wanted to sort of hang out and like in Havana, uh, it's an urban environment, mm -hmm. you know, and people like to play rumba, you know, 
and uh, without drums, that was difficult. Mm. You know, so they came up with like, okay, well, let's take this drawer out of this nightstand, or let's use this table and let's hit the table, or let's take ah, wait, wait, we we used up the candles. Let's take that box and turn it over, and we'll just drum on that. If the police comes, we'll just turn it back over. It was like drums, no drums here. It's a drawer. It's a drawer, exactly. Yeah. <gasps> So that's the background of well, the cajoning cube. To me, like that also makes me think about how, like when I when I first saw river dance being presented, and how the way that in Irish dancing they hold their arms because mm-hmm. they were trying to prevent authorities outside from seeing that they were actually dancing exactly. in their homes. Yes, so yeah, they held because their arms of the, downward because of the, the you know those half doors that they have. Yes, you know, back in the you know 18th century, 19th century, the half door in the pub was commonplace. So you could open just half of the door, and you'd only see the the torso and not the sure. feet so if people kept their arms straight while dancing yeah the policeman could walk by and the arms wouldn't move therefore nobody is dancing and they couldn't see the feet so it's like hello officer but i'm not moving my arms so i'm not dancing no, we're playing percussion over here no big deal right, no deal yeah exactly <laughs> wow yeah it's amazing what people have to do to keep their traditions alive exactly yeah, yeah to keep yeah. their folkloric stories alive yeah, and yeah, to be yeah. able to pass these things down to people right yeah and then the things that people do to work around it and then those things become tap dancing or they become drumming on cajon drums yeah, like, yeah. Wow. necessity is the mother of invention oh there it is oh that's beautiful wow okay well we've we've got on quite a ride <laughs> yeah There was a point where in the middle of that, I was like, I hit record, didn't I? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're, it was like, we're, we're, and I didn't want to completely just look down here because I was like engaged by your story too, but at the same time, let me like, just check. Let's just hope, like, I, I hope the counter is still going. It is. It's there. We're good. All right. Good, good, good. <laughs> okay. So what's, what's a way that people can connect with you and find out more about what you're working on and find out more about where you're going to be? presenting your work okay uh well you can go to my website which is mxplk.com max pollock without the vowels okay mxplk.com um and you can find me on instagram under max one p-o-l-l yeah max one p-o-l-l is my instagram uh i'm on facebook too not that much anymore but uh every now and then and uh yeah roomba tap you can find me under roomba tap um, although now I'm kind of mostly going just by Max Pollock, yeah. the Max Pollock group yeah, to keep it more open because you know, I do many more things other than just Roomba or just Roomba tap. Sure. Yeah, I try to be a little more, um, flexible in also in the nomenclature, you know, it's like, I don't want to be pigeonholed as just Roomba tap. Right. You know, there is more to that. And also that there is the thing that most people don't really know what tap dance means. Mm-hmm. Even less people really know what rumba means. Mm-hmm. So throwing a word at them like rumba tap is like throwing two sticks between their legs. Yeah, they think there's some sort of vacuum cleaner going around exactly. in, in your apartment with exactly. uh, shoes on it. That makes some sound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much that's pretty much what that word does you know, worldwide. It just, it sows confusion. Yeah. Except for people who who know what both mean, both things mean, yeah. you know, they will go, oh, wow, that's cool. But most, you know, like 99% of the rest of the world just goes, huh? 
my introduction was through my Casio keyboard that I had as a kid, and it had some preset rhythmic patterns. And exactly. one of them was samba, one of them was rumba, oh, yeah. one of them was a waltz. Oh, that's yeah. I mean, just very simple exactly. patterns, but that's and, it, and it's exactly what rumba is not. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's exactly what rumba is not. That's the first time I saw the word. Yeah. 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 No, and that's that's the problem with the word. But you're the you know? you're a person that I associate it with. Though, like when I hear the word, then I'm I I picture you. <laughs> like that pops up. Thank you, which is nice, but also not, you know, not entirely the truth. I mean, it is I true, can understand but that. I'm, I'm maybe, you know, I'm proud to be part of that. Yeah. Uh, but people should know what it really is. You know? I feel the same way. Like if they, if they told me that when they think of me, they associate, or when they think of tap dancing, they think of me. Or if, if that were to be a thing, That's I could great. also see you like, uh, I could, I would feel a little bit. Like okay, well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you hear that, that's, but that's, at the same time, right? That's a nice compliment. You should know who Bilbo Jangles is but and please, the Nicholas Brothers. Yeah, please read some books or please, you yes. know, be aware of this. Yes. Uh, but that's you know that's our lifelong legacy and and responsibility is to make sure that people understand that it's way more than just what we are bringing. Yes, we are bringing with us the legacy of thousands and thousands of people who have come before us in various parts of the world yeah. and, and I want my audience to understand more about the world, mm-hmm. not just about me. You know, it's not about me. And as you said earlier, you, when you go to places, when you travel, you're traveling to learn and you're going in with that mindset. You're there to experience what they have to offer you rather than to, you know, be over the top and, and present only what you have to give them exactly yeah yeah no that's that's essentially what i look for i look for information that i can share you know so other people can also then realize how much more beauty there is yeah you know everywhere because there's beauty everywhere yeah you just have to open your eyes and you have to want to see it you know beautiful okay so what's it like being on a postage stamp (laughs) I've never, I've never sat there and talked with someone who's, a, who's on a postage stamp. Yeah, because usually this is the one thing that I have to explain often is um, you are not allowed to picture somebody on a postage stamp with their name unless they are deceased. Oh, really? That's a law. Yeah. So an American postage stamp yeah. can only list can only list your name and image yes. if you are not around anymore. For instance, Elvis Presley had his name across the bottom. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I think Greg, Gregory, Gregory Hines, Hines yes. did too. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um we are still around. Yes. So I'm 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 lucky to say that I am on a postage stamp together with Ayodeli, Dormisha, Derek, yes. and Michaela. Yeah. Uh, and uh, our names are not on it, but that's not the point. The point is not that we are on it. The point is that tap dance is on it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we are just very proud and happy and humbled to be representing an entire tradition that is alive and well mm-hmm. and going into the future. Yeah. And a strong New York connection all around with all, all yes. five of those people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Man. But I'm telling you also... Most post offices have sold out of those stamps. They're very popular. They're very popular. Well, okay. So knowing that, what I was able to recently do when um, I was sending out a lot of thank you cards at one point, and I've still got some more to create. But the, 
I, I bought a lot of the Gregory Hines ones, and I was able to go online on the stamps um, USPS mm-hmm. Postal Service stamp site, and they have giant sheets now where you can. It has like basically six forever stamp books on each giant sheet of wow. stamps, oh, and wow. so you can still buy the Gregory Hines ones. Okay, and and. I believe if you went online to order them, they'll bring them right to your house. I mean, they're they're the postal service. They know probably how, yeah. they know where you live. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they they all arrived one day, and it was just a nice. thrill that like they oh, all wow. came in this big tube and oh, here are these stamps. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, that's it's a it's an amazing honor, and it's also a huge responsibility. Actually, I take it as a responsibility just yeah. as much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, what kind of responsibility does that have with it? Um, the responsibility of sharing the truth about it and sharing the heritage mm-hmm. about it and uh um the power of it yeah and the versatility you know and the reach of it and uh and also i have the additional sort of challenge that i am the only european mm-hmm. on that stamp and the mm-hmm. only austrian on that stamp so um i feel like i also have the responsibility of carrying that information into my country mm. um and making sure that there's more more appreciation and more information about what I do in my own country. Yeah. Because there's very little in Austria. Yeah. yeah very, very little. Um, do you get back there very often? Sure. I mean, to visit, visit my family. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to do some gigs every now and then. Cool. Uh, but I want to increase that frequency for sure. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm also very much uh, into Austrian folklore and Austrian classical music more now so than I was, you know, a couple of decades ago. Sure. Uh, but it's, you know, you, you live and learn and you, you mature and you realize, oh, you know, it's not all just important what's far away from home. Right. You know, all of a sudden you realize, oh, the stuff that I grew up with is actually also pretty cool. Mm. And, there's, and there's so much more than I knew. I, I just found out more uh, about my own uh, cultural heritage. I learned more and now I find want to find out even more because I, I know way more about American and Cuban and Brazilian and whatever music than I know about Austrian music. Mm. I have to admit, you know, so I have a lot to learn, but I want to learn. And that's part of my uh, mission now in the future is to also learn more about my own uh, my own country's traditions and stuff. Yeah. And uh, and sharing it more, you know. So if you were to apply the title of your company, Roomba Tap, but you were to apply it to an Austrian version of that, what would the name of that one be? Would there is there a specific kind of rhythm that would be associated in that way? That no, not really. Okay, not really. That, I'm that fascinated would... to hear more about your country too. So okay. like when that starts to come through, I I, I yeah. know you'll present that in a really cool yeah, yeah, way. Yeah, no, I'm I'm I I, ha- I am working on a project with oh, cool. with uh, a bunch of great musician friends of mine from Austria who are major, major world-class uh, brass ensemble. Wow. And they play classical music, jazz, funk, what have you, in their own arrangements. They're, they're like, you know, they're monster, monster musicians. And they love what I do, and I love what they do. And we want to, uh, we're, we're working on putting together a project that unites Austrian music with what I do with body percussion, yeah. tap dance, an Afro-Cuban vibe, whatever the world music thing that I have yes. been doing for so many years. It's part of you, uh, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be really fun and uh, really entertaining. Also, because we're all we're 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 
uh, we don't like to be sad. We like to have fun. Yes. Uh, so it'll be um, hopefully in the next two years or so that'll be uh, able to come together. It's a scheduling issue because they're they're all very busy and very mm-hmm. very um, in demand. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's something that I really highly value and want to really make a reality. Yeah. To share more about you know sort of my my actual heritage mm-hmm. not just my spiritual heritage you know? yes so does this group already perform as an ensemble yes yeah, yeah yeah are you are you able to share the name of that yeah absolutely um the the big ensemble is called nozil brass okay which is spelled m n o z i l okay nozil and brass the, the english word brass uh it's a seven piece brass ensemble that travels the world successfully wow. and kind of kicked off a new resurgence in brass uh, practice, brass performance, mm-hmm. because they're so good and they're so intense and so funny yeah. when they perform. Uh, and within that ensemble, there are three musicians who have also started as like a band within a band, you know, like the Benny Goodman big band, had yes. the Benny Goodman quartet with Lionel Hampton and Teddy Wilson. Wow. Um, it's kind of like that. And they, they perform as a trio, just trumpet trombone and, and tuba beautiful you got and the bass i've exactly and i've performed with them and that was like instant magic mm. so that'll hopefully come to uh a theater near you that sounds awesome the thought that i'm having too is like maybe you could do some sort of thing like where you know how flamenco people will put tacks in their shoes for to make taps but if you used brass tacks in your shoes Performing mm. with a brass band. Is that a little too on the nose? I don't know. But that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Could you put some brass taps on your shoes and have yeah. it completely be a brass moment? A brass moment. I don't know what that would sound Not like. Not the it whole show. Be, it might be worth trying. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you could do Brass Monkey by Beastie Boys when it's happening. There Maybe you not. Go. I don't know. I don't, okay. know if, I don't know how that fits. These are, I'm just, just spitballing here. Just riffing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> riffing. I love it. <laughs> Man. Thank you so much for coming in. Here, oh, you're Max. very I welcome, really Rick. Thank it, you, man. It's it's been so great to see you again. Absolutely, and, and hear your stories and hear your outlook in the way that you perceive the world. Like this is important stuff to hear. This is, I feel a connection to that. Like wanting to go places and learning about what they're offering, and rather than feeling the need to be the one that's always presenting something. Like there's, there's much more listening to be done than there's speaking. Yeah. 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 I often think about, um, the fact that many times we should be shutting up and just listening rather than talking. Yeah. It's an important part of what we should be doing. And traveling is the most important thing Mm. in your life to learn. Mm. If you can, please travel. Yes. There's nothing as informative and as uh, life affirming and as um, character building Mm. as traveling. I wish every young person in the world would just, as soon as they're old enough, get out and travel a little bit. That's, That's one of the biggest problems I see in the world, that people do not make an effort to see other places Mm -hmm. and you don't have to go too far just reach out a little bit beyond your borders and just see how other people live and deal with things that would change the game i think worldwide yeah you know and um i was lucky to grow up in austria where 
foreign countries are not far away. You right. know, I realize that in Europe it's easier. It's kind of like going to another state. Totally, totally. I mean, if you're in, going to Wisconsin, but in, you're, you're, in Vienna, literally in Vienna, I can get on a bus and I can be in a foreign country in an hour and 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. I can be in Slovakia in, in less than two hours and wow. experience a different cuisine, different language, different culture. Yeah. All it's so close to the border. Yeah. Wow. So Austria is a really, really cool country. And um, to all of you who are aware that I have been doing some workshops in Austria as well. I am I am going to mount this again. Yes. Uh, my um, Max Amberg workshop series will happen again. Hopefully, Excellent. even you know next year, where I bring people to my home area uh, in uh, uh, Lower Austria and Styria to sort of like share the area where I grew up and wow. take people on hikes in the mountains and show them where the echo is. You know where the where the sounds are. And, uh, and then, you know, sharing body percussion and tap and everything, but also sharing the culture and sharing the beauty, beauty of nature mm. and also the calm that you can experience there. Mm. So that'll happen again. Oh, man. I can't wait to see more about that. And you've, you, let us, you let us know where your website is and, and where they, people will be able to hear about those things. Right, so yeah, I'll be, awesome. I'll be posting, yeah. Man, Wow. There's so many different things that we can take this, but like, I really appreciate you coming here today. And I, I, I feel like you've, you've shared so much and this is really beautiful. And thank you for coming back to Minneapolis and, and sharing what you have. Cause you, you bring such a unique thing to your classes that other, other people wouldn't otherwise share. So like you bring experience from different types of rhythms that not everyone thinks about. And I think that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been awesome to hear your insights into clave patterns and mm -hmm. different musicians. At the end of one of your classes, I was coming into a class after yours, but I heard you explaining to a student some different people that should be looked up. I heard you say Mongo Santa Maria. Mm -hmm. I heard you say Tito Puente. Mm -hmm. And I know you said some other people too, but I, do you have some people that you would recommend that tap dancers specifically would listen to and to help open up their to help open up that world of rhythm to them. Sure. Um, I'll mention Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, mm -hmm. which is the most important Afro-Cuban folkloric group that has the longest tradition of any group. Um, they are basically superstars in Cuba. Everybody knows who they are. Nice. They've been a group, uh, a recording artist group since 1952. Wow. So next year they're celebrating their 70th anniversary of existence. Wow. And uh, that's also the group that uh, found me at a club on the Lower East Side called the New York Poets Cafe. They saw me tap dance mm -hmm. to Latin music there. Mm -hmm. And uh, they asked me, they approached me and asked me if I would teach them what I was doing because they liked it. Mm -hmm. And they realized that it was sort of very much akin to what they know but a different way of expressing it. Um, and ever since then, I've been working with them, teaching them how to tap dance, teaching them how to do body percussion. And I've created some choreography that they have incorporated into their show since 2000. And they perform my rumba tap choreography all over the world in their show of hardcore, wow. hardcore Afro-Cuban rumba. Yeah. And uh, I will be going there uh, in October next year. Uh, they have invited me to create a new piece for them and mm -hmm. perform with them on their 70th anniversary in Matanzas in Cuba. What an honor. 
Yes. Yeah. It's a wow. Big honor. Yeah. That is amazing. So Los Muñequitos de Matanzas is definitely a group I you should be aware of mm-hmm. and listen to because they play rumba as it should be played, and they have the deepest groove you will ever hear. It's oh, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, it's beautiful, and they dance like nobody's business. They, the way they dance is so dignified and beautiful and limitless mm. uh, and so expressive. Uh, and they all can do everything. They all sing. They all drum. They all dance. There's no, yeah. there's no l- limits there. Yeah. There are no boundaries. Everybody just embodies the whole thing, the whole cultural realm. Wow. You know? And that's one of the most impressive things about rumba culture is yeah. that everybody knows at least a little bit about every aspect of it. You know? um, so, what are the main elements of the culture? Well, the heritage, mm-hmm. you know, you have to know about the Yoruba uh, background and also the other background, the Congolese background, uh, the Arara background from Benin, you know, from the Ashanti, the Ewe, all that is, all that figures into the wow. basic roots of it. Uh, you have to understand what the percussion is, what instruments are being used, what their function is. You have to understand how the singing works, mm-hmm. uh, what the soloist does, what the congregation does, or the coro, as they say, the choir, mm-hmm. how that works in uh, call and response. And you have to understand how the tap, uh, the tap dance, how the dance works, you know, yeah. um, which has some rules. It is largely improvised, but it's improvised within a framework sure. that you need to know about. You know? Sure. And then there's the religious dancing and the religious drumming, which has more rules, you know, because it's sort of like, that's sort of like the classical music almost, you know, because mm. that's more set. There's less improvisation. There's still improvisation, a lot of improvisation, but it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more set as far as like, okay, if you dance a certain orisha, this orisha has these kinds of movements mm-hmm. and you can improvise with these movements. Yeah? But when the rhythm changes and the song changes, the movements have to change as well. So there's a lot of information there. It's 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 very complex and very profound. Yeah. Very profound. Yeah. Man. So all these things figure into that. Yeah. And uh but all members of the community know about these things, you know. And um uh, I think I the more I learn about it, the more I want to learn. Mm. You know, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Mhm. And that goes for everything. Yeah, you'll never stop learning. No. <laughs> No, I am the eternal student. Yes, yeah, for sure. But it's it's fun, you know, and it's always uh, it's always a discovery and always a positive experience mm-hmm. to say, oh, I don't know any of this. Let, can you can I please find out more? Yeah. And then another door is opened, and you walk through that door, and then there are seventeen more doors, you know, and that's just how it works. Man, that's wow. the process. Thank you so much, Max. Man, Thank it you. Was, it was great hanging Thank out. Thank you. you. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Anytime, Rick. Thank you very much. I'll probably cut away to the sort of outro thing, like thank the dancing fair. And sure. That kind of thing at the I want to. I want to also just, you know, I would like to thank Kalina Miller and the Twin Cities Tap Festival for bringing me out here. Yeah. Brenna, Molly, everybody who worked so hard to make this happen. Yes. And the Cowles Center for yes. hosting the Twin Cities Tap Festival, um, and all the people who are supporting, all the people who are donating to make it happen. It's yeah. it takes a village, and uh, the village. 
of Minneapolis is is very welcoming and and really loving. So I really appreciate being here. I'm happy to hear that too. That's we want to keep that going. <laughs> you know, keep Absolutely. people coming through. Absolutely, keep it yeah. building. Yeah. And when Sarah Reich was here recently, and she mentioned something to the effect of that you needed to, we needed to have a jam going on, and and Noah Kuhn decided, okay, every Monday we're going to have this jam out at Kathy's Windshed, and so. He's been doing this and ever since then, and here you were a couple days ago on a Monday night, we're all in there, and it just continues to go. So things like that are happening here too, and I'm really excited to see that. That's beautiful, yeah, that, because it, it strengthens the community. If you, mm. if you can create a, uh, a regular meeting yeah. where everybody gets together on a regular basis, even if it's once a month, yeah. you know, it's good for the community because people can come together, exchange ideas, and just sort of like check in with each other, support each other. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about, yeah. you know. And it's um, many cultures have this kind of situation, and the jam session is a great affirmation of the life mm-hmm. of the scene, you know. Yeah. Whether it's jazz, whether it's blues, whether it's tap, whether it's rumba, you know. And then eventually you can mix all those things together too, you know, and just invite people to join. Yes. Uh, the more people, the merrier. Yeah. But but a jam session is definitely a good thing to have on a regular basis. Very Absolutely. much so. Very much so. It's like you learn all these things in classes, but then when do you apply it in the real world? Exactly. Like, yes, yeah. you can set choreography on students and things like this and present it. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of area where some of the tap teachers around the country what i've seen is like they get really intimidated by an improv circle or exactly when, when they have to actually e- express their own poetry i mean i feel like in class we're learning words basically like to construct poems and we also have to be able to like present our work in right. some way yeah, yeah. i think that's what these jams are helping with too fi- helping people find their voice and giving them that opportunity and i wish people would understand that art is not sport Mm-hmm. The contest mm-hmm. aspect of the arts is not that important. Right. The community aspect of the art is what really counts. And that's what is the pulse and the heart and soul of everything, is the community aspect. Mm. Not, I want to cut you. No. That's not community. No. That's the opposite of community. Yeah. So more jam sessions and yes. less contests would be a very good thing. Yeah. In my humble opinion. Yeah, I don't flow the same way in a cutting contest. Like no. I I'll do a cutting contest if someone wants to come up and like throw something down, whatever, that's fine, but I'm not like I'm not driven by that. But it's the way you think about it. Yes. It's the way you think about it. A jam session is something is something that is bringing energy. Yes. You know, and bringing energy for sharing. everybody sharing. Yes. Yeah. Not taking away or not counteracting or not, you know, trying to one up yeah you know it's but you know whatever yeah um i just think gathering to share music and gathering to share art and gathering to share culture Mm -hmm. is what matters yes it doesn't always have to be pitting pitting one person against another no In but, fact, I think that's where people kind of run into it because they think it's supposed to be a cutting contest when exactly, they're improvising. Exactly. At the end of a class, even, they get really intimidated, but it's like, no, just come out and share what you know. Exactly. Do it's, something. Right. You don't have to win anything. Yeah. It's not about winning. Yeah. It's about showing up. <laughs> Flap around a few times and then exactly. hit, hit a flat foot and you're out. Exactly. Whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, that's somewhat of a sophisticated concept. And for some people, that doesn't quite compute. Man. 
Thanks for saying that. That's exactly it. Like I, I vibe with that for sure. Like build the community. Yeah. It's, it's really about getting together and, you know, cause if we're all by ourselves with our trophies, yeah. we're by ourselves with a cold piece of gold. Yeah. Ooh, that was a golden saying right there, <laughs> man. Well, I, I think you've given a lot of gold during this one, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And once again, we'd like thank to thank so much. the Twin thank Cities you, Tap Festival, TwinCitiesTap.com, and make sure you mark your calendars for next year's Tap Festival on October 20th through the 23rd of 2022. <laughs> also, thank you to the Dancing Fair. Check out DancingFair.com for all your dancing footwear needs, and to Kathy Wind and Ellen Keen of Keen Sense of Rhythm over at tapcompany.org. And thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. I really appreciate you checking it out. We've got a lot more episodes coming up. And I can't wait to get... I'm going to do a year-end wrap-up one. And yes, we've got some great stuff happening in the future. Also, check out Max Pollock's website, mxplk.com. Yes! All right. Have a wonderful week, y'all. We'll talk to you all soon. And bye-bye.
Have Tap Shoes Will Travel. The podcast hosted by Rick Osland is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, and Anchor.fm. Connect with us today on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.